Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Joining us today are saxophonists Matt Levy and Zach Scheman, members of the award-winning Prism Quartet, one of America's foremost chamber ensembles. Prism has commissioned nearly 300 works and performed throughout the world. We'll link to their website in our show notes so you can read more about the ensemble and each musician. Zach and Matt, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. We like to start by having our guests introduce themselves. So could you each tell us a bit about yourselves and how long you've been with Prism? Um, sure. Um, I have, my name's Matt Levy again, and I've one of, I'm one of the uh, founding members of the group, actually the last founding member. To, to be in the group, and we got our start back in 1984. So we were students at the University of Michigan under Donald Sinta and have maintained that connection to the present day. And I'm Zach Scheman. I'm the alto saxophonist in the Prism Quartet. I joined in 2007, shortly after founding alto saxophonist Michael Whitcomb retired from the group. And I'm also uh, associate professor of saxophone at University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. And so Prism, uh, as you mentioned, Matt, Prism Quartet's been around since 1984. How does a chamber ensemble persevere over such a long period of time? And have there been ups and downs over over that time? Or has it been, you know, going strong and uh, building momentum over time? That's a great question. I I think it's, um, we were fortunate that the founding members were, together geographically for quite a long time, so maybe eight or nine years. And so that gave us a foundation uh, for when the group members sort of splintered across the country, uh, pursuing teaching positions and other opportunities. Mm -hmm. So of course that poses challenges, uh, mainly um, extraordinary travel costs to to keep the group (laughs) together. Um, But I think that foundation of just staying together, building up um, a bunch of activity, touring, building some infrastructure gave us the kind of momentum and the, 
and the baseline to really keep it going. And then it's just evolved very organically over 37 years, just adding programs as they seemed necessary and warranted and interesting to us until it eventually kind of expanded and grew into a organization that has a presence in three states with our own programming and tours internationally. Yeah, great. So that that early foundation, uh, as you said, the nine nine years or so um, of being geographically together, and then uh, maintaining the the group, but then figuring out how what it looks like as you as you all dispersed across the country. Right. I think that can be a challenge for young groups. They form, and yeah. then after a couple of years, they're pursuing different opportunities individually, and then the group just can't sustain itself. You know. Sure. That's a good segue into our next question. Many musicians and artists have portfolio careers. All of your members hold full-time positions at well-known universities. How do you juggle all the activities with PRISM along with your university positions? And what advice would you give to those just starting on a portfolio career? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I should say that I am not a full-time professor. Uh, my full-time gig is as executive and co-artistic director of PRISM's nonprofit. So that is actually a full-time job for me. And I teach, I, I teach also at Temple University where I teach saxophone and chamber music um, and do some other work um, with other institutions in my hometown of Philly, like Curtis Institute has a great entrepreneurship program. So I've mentored their students as well. Um, but um, I think, uh, can you go back and read that question again? Sorry. Sure, sure. Many musicians and artists have portfolio careers. All of your members hold full-time positions at well-known universities. How do you juggle all the activities with PRISM along with your university positions? And what advice would you give to those just starting on a portfolio career? Right. Um, I think it's a question for each of us individually. How do we juggle these things? Because Mm -hmm. like any artist or administrator, we have limited capacity. We can only do so much. And so um, we pick and choose uh, uh, the things that are most meaningful for us. And I think PRISM is at the top of that list for all of us. You know, it's something we're deeply committed to. So, so a lot of it has to do with planning. You know, we, we work together to plan our schedule at least one or two years in advance. So we block time on the calendar uh, to produce major projects and recordings. So it's very much about planning and organization and just our individual priorities. And beyond that, we also individually um, pursue other meaningful solo work. Um, and uh, so it's really sort of a balancing act. And it's, I think, up to each of us individually to find that balance. And mm-hmm. for me personally, I, I often overextend myself and have to be really careful about that. You know, I have to be able to say no to some things and, and recognize that, you know, there are other obligations outside of being a musician and an entrepreneur, you know, family and maintaining relationships. And so I think finding that healthy balance is really the trick. And I'm not sure I've done it yet myself, actually. (laughs) Zach, how about you? Well, for me, I think the the key is making sure when you're doing a lot of different activities is uh, finding the connection between them and finding ways uh, to relate those activities to one another, hopefully in a way where they benefit each other. So I certainly feel like my time spent with the quartet, whether it's touring or recording or working with composers, that all ties directly into my teaching 
um, as a as a saxophone professor, and vice versa. I hope that um, some of the things that I learn as a teacher working with my students, I often find especially um, graduate students um, are, are really inspiring to be around and help me grow as an artist. Um, and I hope to bring that back to the quartet. So that's actually one of the, the benefits I find of having the quartet in its current stage where we're spread out. Uh, four individuals are in different parts of the country. But then when we get together, we can bring um, what what we've maybe picked up or learned um, individually and share with each other. Yeah. I'd like to just mention one other thing that I think is personally important, which is if you're interested in a portfolio career where you're, you know, um, doing lots of kinds of work that all add up to a really interesting, um, you know, life, then I think it's important to just focus on the things you're passionate about, not to do it for its own sake. Um, For me, I love, you know, technology and audio recording. And so part of my interest has led me to become a self-taught audio engineer, you know, and produce recordings. Um, Also sort of interest in the administrative side um, and understanding what that's about um, has led me to kind of help prison pursue lots of goals in terms of fundraising and programming. And I think, uh, I think the the through line is that all of these things are sort of on a, on a spectrum that kind of helped me to connect the various segments of the, of the industry that interests me in particular. And I think it's important for students, especially to determine what their own passions are and, and to find, uh, to, sorry, you know, it's all good. Yeah. So to prioritize them, really. So what you're saying is follow your passions, and then it's up to everybody to manage their time. So time management sounds like it's kind of the theme. Right, right. So that you're, what you're pursuing is organic to you and is, is what you're passionate about and, and can go beyond just simply being a great performing artist, but also draw on your other skills and interests, whatever they may be within the music sector. So the idea is to kind of coalesce all these skills so that they um, form a whole. Yeah, and, you know, especially early on, you know, you do things, to, to, to your point about following your, doing doing something you're passionate about, you know, especially early on, maybe you're doing something because it allows you to pursue something you're passionate about. So, for example, maybe you are working a part-time job, uh, doing something that, that allows you to gig or to uh, give, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Even those sorts of jobs can have their benefits. You know, I was a waiter for many years um, early yeah. in my career. Just to, And I learned a lot doing that, like interacting, sure. organizing, you know, um, just the, the sheer mental demands of, of, of that sort of work, I think, can really serve you well. Right. So, yeah. So when and why did PRISM launch uh, Zass Records? Is it is it part of PRISM or is it a for-profit subsidiary of, of the organization? Um, Zoss is a program of our nonprofit organization. It's not its own organization. It's simply a program of Prism Quartet Inc., which is a 501c3. And so um, we launched it in 2016 um, after having recorded at least a couple dozen albums for many different labels. And over the course of those experiences, garnering lots of the skills that are necessary to, to have your own label. So we worked especially with uh, Innova Records, which is the label of the American Composers Forum. 
And so we got to see the kind of the inner workings of how labels are run and came to the conclusion that, well, that's something I think we could do. Sure. And one of the benefits of doing it is um, you can use your resources in a more effective way. So most labels don't take risk, like they don't take financial risk. So, and often you have to pay them some kind of administrative fee. Um, so we felt that those resources might be better used to hire a publicist or do some marketing, you know. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of streamline our resources into the most effective um, arena possible. So we launched the label and we connected with um, Naxos of America as our distributor, uh, which is the leading classical music distributor in, in the U.S. But we left Naxos about a year ago and joined with a distributor called Symphonic, which actually handles more uh, music on like the pop and Latin side. But they do have some classical artists, and that was a good move for us. We got to, um, you know, they. Um, I think one of one of the things that that I personally learned is that the distributor is actually doing a lot of the work that I thought the record label did. So the distributor has their own PR people, their own marketing people. You know, um, they deal with lots of the outlets, whether they be physical outlets or digital service providers. So that actually became a really healthy relationship where we could work directly with the distributor. And the label is sort of like the middleman in some cases. The advantage of a label is that they have their own cachet, their own, you know, um, you're with a roster of other artists who, yeah. you know, that have a lot of credibility and a long history. And so there can be lots of advantages as well. But for us, most of our releases are, are through our, our Zoss. Yeah. And are there other artists on Zoss or um, ensembles or is it solely for PRISM? And it's for PRISM and our individual members. So, individual yes yeah. okay. so yeah. and that's that's a function primarily of capacity you know sure right um, yeah. so zach released a solo um concerto recording tim McAllister and i have released solo recordings and tamor's working Great. on one so yeah in researching for this interview i spent time on your website and there we can see that prism records performs and tours teaches in residencies, runs the nonprofit, commissions music, writes a blog, and likely a slew of activities that weren't highlighted. So beyond playing the horn, what are the activities you tell your students to master to better prepare them for life as musicians? I think we probably both weigh, on, weigh in on this, but um, I would actually start by emphasizing that Artistry is at the core of what we do as professional musicians and as a chamber ensemble. So I don't want to diminish the importance of playing at the very highest level. But you're, you're right. There's so many other skills that are necessary at the professional level and when running an organization um, like PRISM. Um, so a few of the non-musical things that I think we highlight with our students and talk about um, when, we're, when we're doing um, various clinics. Um, the first would be communication skills and um, just the ability to write incredibly well. Uh, this has so many applications, not just in arts or in, in music, but um, the ability to communicate your thoughts clearly. Um, in, in what we do, it might be writing narratives about our work for grant applications or press releases or program notes or liner notes for our recordings, uh, but also just the day-to-day communication, whether it's internal within the organization or external, um, but learning to write is just such an important fundamental skill that will apply to 
virtually every aspect of life. Um, so for me, I remember in grad school, there's a class where um, one of the requirements was um, every week we had to read a book and write a paper about it. And while it was a little bit unpleasant to go through that, that semester, I became a much better writer. <laughs> um, so it's you have to practice it like anything else. So I think with our students, we emphasize things like writing, you have to practice just like you practice your instrument. Um, same with speaking, oral communication. It's uncomfortable, but, um, you know, oftentimes uh, students have to speak in public and they haven't taken a public speaking class and it's not part of their curriculum. curriculum. So that's something I sometimes recommend is uh, for students to take a public speaking class and to get comfortable speaking um, in our degree recitals or our student recitals, they're not often asked uh, or required to speak, um, but unofficially I usually require my students to speak, and that's something that we do when we're performing. Um, we'll usually introduce the pieces that we're playing or we'll introduce the composer of the work um, that we're playing and have them come speak. Um, and I think it's actually, at this point, fairly rare that you'll go to a concert and there's no speaking, right? Yeah. Um, so find ourselves uh, speaking at pre-concert talks or in panel discussions or, you know, certainly master classes as teachers. Um, we also talk about budgeting and finance um, and, and learning those skills. Uh, so as a student, that's a good time to learn how to budget and um, at least the basics of bookkeeping and, and finances, um, because inevitably that will become part of once you start professionalizing your work as an artist, um, putting together budgets and accounting for various details. And then there's so many other things. I mean, Matt mentioned um, uh, audio and, and uh, audio engineering, and video recording, photography. Um, there, there are so many skills that you could choose to develop. And so you just have to decide again, how you want to use your time. Do you want to use, you, do you want to invest that time, you know, in a practice room, practicing your instrument, um, or uh, becoming really good at audio engineering, or uh, becoming a great writer, or all of the above? Um, and I, I think the list could, could go on and on. Yeah, I think uh, with, with a quartet like PRISM, we each have different skill sets that complement each other. So for example, uh, Tamar Sullivan is great at videography and video editing. And so he and I often work together when we're organizing um, video audio recordings of concerts that we might self-produce. Um, and so everyone brings their own skill set. Um, I would also emphasize um, Zach's comments about writing. That's the first at the top of my list, you know, for my students, good writing skills. And all too often musicians are very core writers. You know, they can't represent the work they do in a way that's commensurate with the quality of their artistry. So I think um, being able to articulate really clearly and in a way that can be moving and interesting and fun um, is incredibly important because many people will first engage with your art through the written word. They'll read about it and want to get to hear it. And so we need to have really compelling language that describes our work. And I would say that's true for for graphic design and photography um, and lots of other areas where the artistry may be at a really high level, but the other ways of representing the artist are at a much lower level. And so we need to keep everything at the same level or higher, you know, as our music, you know. So for Prism, that means we often engage like professional designers and photographers and um, publicists and, you know, people with, other skill sets that can complement ours and amplify the work we do. And I think for students, um, you know, 
they might be best served. They probably don't have enough money to, to hire all these folks, but they can start developing their skills, especially with writing, you know. And on the, on the financial end, I would say um, a budget is another way of telling a story. You know, a budget is a representation of a project or an organization that is very illuminating. And so it's important to understand how to put these things together so that you can tell your story to potential funders, for example, and they can have a sense that, yes, you're working in the realm of the possible. And these figures seem to make sense. You know, and you've covered all the bases with all the possible expenses. And so having like a sample budget would be a, it's a really useful thing for a student to see, like what would a recording budget look like or a budget for a concert series, you know, and building it out is really, really helpful. Yeah. So as a nonprofit, as a 501c3, you have both earned income and unearned income. Uh, how does that kind of break down for PRISM? Well, I could I could start speaking uh, uh, about that just as uh, in the position of relatively newly elected treasurer <laughs> in, the, in uh, Prism Quartet Inc. Um, and uh, Matt can certainly go into more detail. But um, our, our revenue is a combination of earned and contributed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, just for for the audience, um, if you're you're not familiar, earned revenue for us would be things like ticket sales from concerts. Uh, performance fees from touring engagements, um, sales of recordings and merchandise, royalties from streaming or digital downloads, interest earned on cash reserves that might be in a savings account or invested. And for organizations like ours, this actually makes up a small fraction of our budget. Um, maybe 15 to 20% would not be unusual in a normal year. Yeah. Uh, and then in a pandemic, it's going to be even, even less because <laughs> we're not doing a whole lot of touring. Um, and then contributed revenue would include uh, things like individual contributions, like like donations, uh, corporate contributions for us. Um, we, we work with Con Selmer, whose instruments we play exclusively, and they help um, help with our concert series. Um, grants we apply for and receive from government agencies and private foundations. And then in-kind contributions, which include services that members of our organizations contribute without compensation. So Matt referenced a, a couple of those things with um, some of the videography uh, that, that Tamor does or um, some of the post-production that Matt will do with our audio recordings, um, including editing and mixing and, and other things. Yeah. I, um, looking back over the years, um, when PRISM first started, we didn't have a 501c3, so almost all of our revenue was from uh, through touring engagements, you know, and then in about 1991, we started our nonprofit and gradually started receiving support and self-producing our own programming. And now we're doing programming in um, Philadelphia, New York City and southeastern Michigan. And so we've garnered more and more support for those programs and they've really kind of flourished. And we've been a little um, we've kind of cut back on touring a bit. Um, uh, so that we can sort of, since we have a limited amount of capacity for all of these programs. Um, so, so we've seen kind of a shift from almost all earned revenue to 20 or 25% or so. Um, yeah. I think we hear that like healthy organizations should be like 50, 50, but in reality, that's not always the case, you know, and it really depends on, um, your individual circumstances. And I think the one thing that is really important for us is to have really diversified income. 
So we're fortunate that we get support from foundations and government agencies in all three states. You know, we have legal standing in each state. So our diversity is, although most of our revenue is, is uh, contributed, there's still a great deal of diversity. You can't really count on any one funder to sustain its support of your organization indefinitely. So you have to kind of build that into the mix so that you have enough support from enough organizations that you'll have, you'll still be able to kind of sustain your programming. Sure. Going back to uh, 1991, when you decided to um, form the 501c3, what were the conversations around that? And what was the decision uh, making? Why did you just make the decision to, to, to turn it into a nonprofit? Yeah. And we recognized that, we would have access to resources and we had great interest in commissioning composers. And so our first, our first, um, work, you know, after forming the 501c3 was immediately applying for funding to commission composers. Okay. Yeah. And so, that, so there were funding sources out there that you didn't have access to unless you were a nonprofit. Right. And that's still the uh, case. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. There are lots of foundations that will use fiscal sponsors, uh, as conduits. So, but many foundations still don't recognize fiscal sponsors. So you really kind of need to be, um, your own nonprofit to have access to those resources. True. It is also true that foundations are realizing that they have these kind of, um, eligibility criteria have, have, um, prohibited people from marginalized communities from receiving yep. support. So we're seeing a shift in, in philanthropic circles to kind of loosen up those rules to let more people yeah. in and to be more fair in how they're distributing their, their resources. Yeah. That was a, actually a question I had when you were speaking, because that's, it's not particularly onerous, but it's, there are steps you have to do to become a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole legal process. Um, and we use a great organization called volunteer lawyers for the arts and they helped us to file all the necessary paperwork. It's also something that can be difficult to maintain. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it right out of the box. Right. You know, I think if you're right. forming a chamber group, maybe you stay together for five to ten years and see if that is something that is truly sustainable, and then you consider a nonprofit because you do have to maintain. You have to file forms, tax forms, state registrations, hold board meetings, keep minutes, maintain a board. Yeah, yeah, all the stuff. So it's a lot of work, you know. And it's only worth doing if you have a really great core to the to the ensemble and, and the organization. You can start just by becoming a like a registering as an LLC or some kind of organization yeah. to you know, and then eventually transition. That's great advice. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.